This is Salt and Spine. I spent many, many hours thinking about the word classics and what I wanted it to mean and what I didn't because classics can be boring. Like, yeah. I don't know that we need another fettuccine Alfredo recipe. Like, right. do we right. really for sure? But then I, you know, so I had all these rules that if it was a classic recipe, I had to feel like I was doing it in some way that was different or better, that I had found something that really made it easier, more doable, better textured, better flavored. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine Stories Behind Cookbooks, and you just heard from today's guest, Deb Perlman. Now, we know Deb and love Deb as the creator of the web blog Smitten Kitchen, a dated term, but one that is prevalent today, as the blog is still the central piece of her growing media empire. Deb is now the author of several cookbooks, including her latest, Smitten Kitchen Keepers, New Classics for Your Forever Files. We've got a great chat with Deb today. Today, we're talking about how she keeps that vision for her blog central to everything she does today, how her growing social media presence fits in, and dive into her latest book. Of course, we're also putting Deb to the test in our signature culinary game, and we've got a featured recipe for supporters of the show. For just a couple dollars a month, you'll get access to a handful of new recipes from featured books on our show. It's a great way to try before you buy, and you'll get access to our hundreds of recipes in the archives from some of your beloved cookbooks authors. This week, we've got a recipe from Deb Perlman's latest. It's ginger garlic chicken noodle soup. Check it out on our website, saltandspine.com. And now let's head to our studio at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, where Deb Perlman joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Deb. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you for having me on. Of course. We are thrilled to have you. Um, (laughs) Actually, we just had Melissa Clark on, and I was telling her this, that she was one of the 10 dream guests we put together when we were conceiving of this podcast, and you were on the list, too. I am very flattered. Yes, it's taken us five years, but two in like the past couple weeks, so I'm thrilled to have you and to chat with you about your latest cookbook, your third cookbook, Smitten Kitchen Keepers. Thank you. But we always like to start just by talking a bit more about your life, your career, sort of how you got to, to this book today. So we, we always go right back to the very beginning. You grew up in New Jersey. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about the role that food played in your life as a kid? <laughs> were, you, were you drawn to food? Did you like cooking? Tell us a bit about that. Um, as a kid, I was very picky, okay. which is hilarious because I'm a picky kid now. You might have the same experience. I don't know. Yeah. Do your kids eat everything? No, one one does and one does not. Okay, so, so that's mixed. the same in my yeah. family. But um, yes, I was a very, I was a picky eater, but you know, it was pretty normal. Like I feel like we said normal suburban food. My mom, definitely more of an ingredient household. My mom liked to make things from scratch, but it wasn't like she was like, okay, we're going to make ketchup today for the week. I mean, it was a mix, but it was roast chicken, baked potatoes, spaghetti, meatballs, like regular kind of food. Yeah. And were you interested in cooking from a young age or or just interested in sort of what was to eat? I liked cooking, but I didn't really get that involved in it. Got like it. I don't okay. think I was much help in the kitchen. And for me, it came much later. I think I always just thought I knew how to cook. And yeah. then like I hit that like adulthood mark and I was like, I really maybe I can follow a recipe, but I realized I didn't have go-to recipes for so many things that I wanted. And that's what I wanted. Like I wanted to be like, oh, lemon cake, I've got a recipe for that. Sure. And I didn't have that. Sure. Which is really what, what you set out to do when you, you started your blog. But before you got to the blog, you you pursued some other career paths for a while, right? You you went to GW and majored in psychology, tried some art, ther- worked as an art therapist for a while. Like, tell us how you sort of navigated that career and, <laughs> and what sort of pivoted, what the pivot looked like for you when you decided it was time to blog, which originally your blog was not about food. We can talk about that too. Absolutely. I feel like this is the point where, you know, somebody who's like really good at this would be like, well, I'll 
all these steps <laughs> led me here. I was like, yeah. no, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I was like, yeah. psychology, it sounds good. I think I'll become a psychologist. Like, I'll do that. And then I was really interested in fine arts. I did a lot of painting and ceramics. And so I had a, a minor in fine arts. And then I was like, wait, what do you do with this? If you realize you don't necessarily want to be a psychologist. Sure. So I heard about this five-year program I could do where you could do a master's in art therapy. I'm like, okay, okay, there's some job prospects. And so I did exactly that. And then I moved to New York. I started working as an art therapist. Um, and I really I worked at a nursing home and it was really cool. Okay. Like I loved working with old people, yeah. which I guess I am now one, but like that sounds like, <laughs> could I please go to a nursing home? Like it sounds really nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And <laughs> just like a little R and R for a day or two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a spa. <laughs> yeah. Um anyway, so I worked at one for a few years and I really did enjoy like that, but it was definitely not my calling and I wasn't sure. really happy doing it. And then I felt really stuck because I felt like really pigeonholed in this hyper specific career. And I'm like, what? I'm like to do with my life. Plus, I mean, I wasn't making like great money, but I wasn't like a beginner salary. So I was like, you know, sure. living in New York, I gotta, I gotta be able to pay rent. So that was definitely not a fun time. And that was probably around the time I started my first blog, yeah. which was called Smitten, where I was like, I'm just gonna write dumb stories about New York. And just as an outlet, I wasn't thinking it would ever turn into anything. And it just blew my mind when it grew readership. I'm like, why would just writing dumb stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it was just called Smid and you were writing sort of about your life, about dating, about life in New York. You you ended up meeting your husband as yes. a, who was a reader of, of Smid, yes. right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I was going on a lot of really bad dates and they were, very, to me, it was very funny. Like there was I, like so many stories. <laughs> yeah. Just people like, you're like, oh yeah, they seem nice. And then you're like, oh my God, they might have human heads in their freezer. I gotta go. Um, So I was I just thought, you know, so many friends were like, you need to write this stuff down. So I was like, I'll just write stories. I'm highly opinionated. That's it. I didn't yeah. think anyone was going to read it. And in fact, my husband was probably reading it from like the second or third week. Sure. And uh, so we went on, I think we met for drinks and then we got married like two years later. So yeah. that was it. No more dating for me. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Can't write any dating stories now. <laughs> and, yeah, that's kind of when you pivoted the blog then, right? It, it evolved from Smitten to Smitten Kitchen. Um, I pivoted a couple years couple later, years. but yeah, I mean, I think we got married in 2005 and I think I did, honey, I did not say that. I think we got married <laughs> in 2005 uh -huh. um, and around two, but I was, it was to me, I felt like I'd sort of run out of like the random stories I wanted to tell yeah. and cooking was taking over. It there wasn't like there wasn't cooking in it. It was like, this is what I'm doing. I'm trying to figure out how to make baked beans. I'm trying to figure out a really good cornbread to bring to this barbecue kind of thing. Yeah. So it was definitely focusing on that. I'm like, I think I'm just going to go all food and see what happens. And I'm sure it'll flop because why would you want to hear about cooking for me? I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, you've, you've said many times in interviews and things that you thought it'd be like a six month thing, Fully. right? Like, like I and was like, be done. And it's time to get a new job job. Yeah. And, and you had a pretty loyal and rapidly growing audience quite quickly. I mean, I was lucky to bring over audience from my first site, but sure. I remember it was like, I mean, a thousand people a day. Like, okay. I mean, it's like, it's not, you know, it's not like a major number in, in page yeah. views or whatever. But it was sort of, you were sort of in this heyday of blogging where everybody was blogging and mm -hmm. there was a lot of, I think, competition too, because it was just a, a new platform, a new mm -hmm. way to consume content. And, and you somehow cracked the code a little bit to continue that growth and to continue growing this audience. What did, what did that sort of feel like when it started to get more serious and eventually, you know, the next couple of years led to you? making it your full-time role? I guess I never really even thought of it that way. But, you know, it's uh -huh. true. There, It was definitely, a, there was a wave of early bloggers and I was probably, and then there, I, I think there's plenty of people who came before me. But I will say that of like 
I guess my generation or cohort of writers, a whole lot of them that are like quite successful to started out by self-publishing. And that's yeah. all to me blocking was like there was a really a lot of emphasis on the web log of it, like the diary-ish thing. And that might have been the format people were taking. But in the end, it was just self-publishing. And some people were writing a lot of opinions about politics and now they're political writers. And some of them are writing about culture. And now they're, you know, styles editors at the New York Times or something like that. But a lot yeah. of them just came out of that self-publishing era where you just did not see an in in a magazine or a traditional place where you could get a job and they I certainly didn't so I don't know how aware of it I was when it was happening like I mean except for people being like we've heard about this blog thing can we interview about your blogging sure. can we get a picture of you at your laptop like <laughs> um with just a flashlight overhead <laughs> right, right. Yeah. they always want a picture of you with your laptop like typing in bed from like your pajamas yes, yeah. or like your mom's basement or something right right but I yeah so I think it's really interesting, but I also think, you know, nowadays there are still people getting into self-publishing and they're just, maybe it's, a, maybe this, maybe this year it's a newsletter, you right. know, instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Or maybe a podcast, like there's sure. so many ways that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that's, that's very relevant and true. Um, but it, it's interesting to frame it that way, that, that you were just self-publishing sort of from the beginning. I mean, obviously now you have cookbooks and things that are a mm -hmm. little bit different than self-publishing, but still to this day, a lot of your work is self-published. Mm -hmm. did, did you have that moment early on where you thought, should I go get a job at like a, a major food magazine, like go get a writing job somewhere that's not self-published? I definitely would have liked to. Like okay. I thought that was the only way to do it. I did not uh -huh. think this was going to turn into anything. Okay. So I think I probably applied for something at Gourmet and something else. But like shockingly, shockingly, they did not want to hire me, a person with no experience <laughs> and also quite relevant, no connections whatsoever. I don't uh -huh. know anyone in media. I do not have media buddies like maybe now, but like, sure. you know what I mean? Like sure. I had no connections anywhere um, yeah. and I had no experience. So yeah, no, shockingly, I did not, I did not get those jobs. Yeah. Um, and uh, maybe for the better. Yeah. I mean, now I can maybe say that, but uh -huh. who knows? I mean, maybe yeah. I would have learned some stuff. <laughs> sure. Maybe I would have learned some stuff. But I really, but I was kind of disappointed. I'm like, well, I'm just going to have to write about cooking. And I yeah. wasn't thinking that much. I just thought, let me just write about cooking. Like, I have opinions. I want to share this. Yeah. So that was really where it started. And I just, I, because there were food blocks that existed at the time, it wasn't like there weren't others, but they tend to be from people with more professional backgrounds. Like they were working at a restaurant or maybe they were blogging about going to cooking school. I just sort of thought that those would be the food blogs that people would read and not just like a rando being like, I made a cake, but it was just okay. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't that good. What's whisking? <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, totally. And, and those were sort of those early days of blogging. So much has changed since then. And I think when people think about you and your work, your blog is still sort of a core part of your brand and your mm -hmm. identity. Absolutely. And so many people have evolved and you have embraced new platforms and things. I mean, you're on Substack, you're on TikTok, you're doing sure. all the things, right? But but how have you sort of kept the blog, the core focus? Is that just really what it's all about for you or what? It really is a choice. I really yeah, consider choice. it like the main platform mm -hmm. and almost everything else I do are arrows that point back there, except yeah. for the books. The books kind of get to live, sure. but they, they work together. You know, I mean, there's most of the books have a ton of recipes that do are not on the site, you know, yeah. so it's, they're really largely new, but I, I like that they get to have their own, like, it's almost like a side collection. Yeah. Um, and in this case, I feel like a lot of these would be great for the site, but I really, I like them being in their own little packet with a beginning and an end. Yeah. Do you think about your your brand a lot? Like, do you think about the brand identity, like what you convey, what the blog means to all of it? 
Or has it just sort of happened naturally to you that this is the work you do and it falls into place? If I think about it, I have to pull my eyes on myself, <laughs> okay. but that might be like the Gen Xer in me. Okay. Um, I think about it a little bit, but mostly it's really, I'm not very good at having an outsider perspective of what I do. Like I try to get better at it over the years, but in the end, I don't think in a way, I don't really think I've changed except for like being a lot better at writing recipes and knowing how to get the results I want in the kitchen rather than being like, this is a cool thing to make, but I don't know how to make it and nobody else has made it, so I won't make it, yeah. you know? Um, so aside from the cooking skills and probably stronger recipe writing, I think that the not the center of what I'm doing hasn't changed. It's more, sure. it's always been about trying to chase down the perfect version that you can make at home of something yeah. that you love. But there's certainly like an authenticity to your identity, um, a warmness. We have a, a listener question about your philosophy and aversion to sponsored content, which I think oh when, if, when we think about your brand and we think about other food media personalities and brands, sponsored yeah. content is almost always part of the mix, right? Or brand partnerships or things like that, which is something you've just flat out said no to the entirety of your career. Can you talk about sort of the yeah. pros and cons of that or how you've made reach that decision? Yeah, let's see if I can do this in a two minute <laughs> Yeah, sound, sure. Right? So, because it, it's, it's, there's a lot of big picture here and the bigger picture, I mean, the ultimate thing is I say no to it because I hate making money. I'm like, I just hate it. I'm like money, no, who needs it? So, um, but that was one part. But the other yeah. thing is that I always wanted to do an ad-based site, you know, like traditional media. There's ads, there's right. media. That's how the media makes money. Nobody asks the New York Times how they make money. Of course, they probably have sponsored stuff now too, but like yeah. it's just, it's the ads. And so to me, I wanted it to work that way. And I've been very lucky that I've been able to make an income and support my life. You know, sure. Very, very fancy lifestyle. <laughs> my my old Navy, you know, luckies. Um Get a piece of this. <laughs> um, no, but so I've been very lucky though to have a you know a solid and steady income from the ads on the site. Sure. So in part you could say because of that maybe I didn't need to consider, yeah. but I can also tell you that I did not want to do it. I yeah. have absolutely no poker face. I would be very, very bad at it, and I did not want to spend my days, my years, my life hoping that like somebody would give me money to say stuff about their brand or their product that I wasn't even sure I believed in. It wasn't going to work for me. Yeah. Um. So I think it's great for people for me to work, especially when they make it work. In that feels really natural where you're like, I know this person loves this brand, so it's really smart of them to make money from it. Yeah. But I just, I guess I didn't really want that to be my only way. I felt, felt like if I couldn't make it get a go with it with like ads and book sales, I was just going to have to find something else to do. I don't know if that's relevant, you know, to say that with that hard line in 2022, like, you know, everybody should do what's working for them. But, you know, sure. then you have things like Instagram and TikTok where it's actually your only way to make money on those. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. And so it's not like you have an ad alternative. Right. Um, you know, you have it's to not be a YouTube, the ad. Yeah. So I understand why somebody would have to do that, but yeah. I don't know. It, I don't think I'd be very good at it. Yeah. Well, I think it, it and I want to talk about your voice a bit. Um, your writing voice. Sorry like about her, your sorry about your my, my Marge Simpson. <laughs> yes. Uh your writing voice. Cause I think that that choice that you made to not take brand partnerships and sponsorships and things also helps lens some of that authenticity and that warmth and that trust that I think people have in you. Did that sort of voice, and in your first book, first cookbook, you call it telephone cord cooking, sort mm -hmm. of approach to how you write and how you write recipes. Did that come naturally to you when you started blogging or is that, how has that evolved over time? I think it's really the only way I know how to do it at yeah. the time. And I guess it's still true, but there was the biggest thing were chef cookbooks. It was always like the person, and these are amazing cookbooks. And I knew a lot of people were trying to cook their way through some fancy chef 
chef cookbook and like, where can I get this certain kind of chemical, you know, on a Saturday and I need the powder for this or this is that I need to, you know, rest the swab for 30 days before I commit. And that's great. I mean, that's wonderful. That's what what your passion is. But that wasn't my passion. I wanted to be, I wanted to have the best yellow cake. Yeah. (laughs) So in terms of, I never knew I was developing a voice. Like, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm like, that's nice. Yeah. It's not where somebody had told me that, like, this was all going to work out. <laughs> right. Maybe then I would have worked as hard. <laughs> but um, I um, I just really only knew how to do it the way I wish it was. And that's always, I think, when I I love talking to people who are thinking about getting into it. I'm like, come, there's room for everyone. Yeah. And also, say it the way you wish somebody else was saying and they're not. That's mm-hmm. your voice. Yeah. And what do you mean by that telephone cooking, telephone cord cooking phrase if people aren't familiar? Well, the first thing it means is that I'm old. Um, <laughs> and the second thing that it means is that I remember when I was very young and very young, very, very young, basically an infant. <laughs> and um, telephones still had cords. Yes. And you would have like, I don't know, like, you know, you had the, so you had the longer cord uh-huh. in the kitchen. Right. Uh-huh. And so mom would be on the phone making dinner. And it was like, wait, no, how do I do that, Kathy? Okay, so we chop it like this. And I don't know this happened every day, but I think of like the way to people who are just getting it done at home talk yeah. to each other about how to make something yeah and i think that is so much cooler than the way chefs talk to proteges there's a place for that it's just not my kitchen sure you no know? so i wanted to talk the way your neighbor would explain how she makes her meatloaf so good yeah like the neighbor who wanted you to make the meatloaf as good as her not the one who had for you. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> the friendly neighbor, not the foe. <laughs> not the one who didn't want you to bring the better meatloaf to the potluck. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I love that. And I think it also speaks to, um, you do all your own photography, you, <laughs> you shoot your own photos. Um, and unlike some other food blogs yeah. of then and of now, you don't document the recipe process. And I think it sort of speaks to that too. And that it, if you did, it'd be such a different approach. Whereas this telephone cord cooking concept, there's no visuals there either, right? It's it's part of that explanatory, supportive, conversational approach that you take to to um, helping home cooks, right? Yeah, I mean, I I think these days I would maybe like here's a photo with the ugly one, and here's the photo that's sixteen blobs. But I love yeah. to talk about like how I got there because I think context can we are all. You know, obviously, pro head notes. I think they should be twice as long. Yes. <laughs> um, I think we should make people matter about them. Um, yeah. But I also, um, I think that when it explains like why the choices were made and how you got there and maybe even how it fit into your life and the way it really paints a whole bigger picture, mm-hmm. sort of in the way that we might look at a painting, but we also in a museum, but we also want to hear like what were the artists going through? Oh, that's really interesting. We love yeah. the tour. Yeah. And I think you don't have to read a head note every time you want to make my spaghetti. That's fine. Sure. <laughs> you don't even have to read it once if it's not your thing. But I think it can be really helpful when you're like, why am I roasting garlic this way? Wait, we want to put the whole bag of spinach in what if somebody was already explaining that to you yeah like in the head you don't want to read (laughs) yes yeah so i think it's nice to explain which decisions were made and also i chopped the onions this way because when i chopped them this way this happened and i chopped the garlic this way so the why of it is really nice to explain yeah because i'm sure you've been there in a recipe where you're you're just dropped into the recipe you just said the recipe and you're like why yeah why, why do am I? I have to why do am I doing way? this? Yeah. Why is it? Is this definitely worth it? Like, yeah. will this make an outcome? And what if somebody explained it? Exactly. Yeah. Not leaving any of those sort of questions unanswered that you know home cooks are going to have. Maybe I'm just like a high anxiety cook, <laughs> but I'm like, you know, when I'm in the middle of a recipe, I'm like, am I sure I need to do this because this is adding 15 minutes to the recipe and they're hungry? Yeah. 
Now let's talk about the cookbooks. I know originally you sort of weren't planning cookbooks or you sort of didn't have, not that you had an aversion mm-hmm. to writing your own cookbooks, but it you weren't super keen on it, right? Mm-hmm. And you had, a, I think, a moment when you became a parent where you started to think about le- maybe legacy is too loaded of a word, right? But mm-hmm. like bringing something more tangible than the internet um, with your recipes. Can you talk about that process and how you decided to pursue your first cookbook, which you know was ultimately <laughs> a huge success, as all three have been? <laughs> Thank you. Um, and actually, it's and I, I try to be very careful with my wording here because to be like, I never wanted to write a cookbook is a real insult to people whose dream sure. is to be like, I had opportunities and I didn't take them, you know. Sure. But I should the the reality behind that is that I hadn't heard much about writing cookbooks that sounded appealing to me. Mm-hmm. I heard about people having their voice scrubbed out, being told they couldn't have the head notes they needed to have, yeah. not being in control of the photography, the cover, the colors, the the text, you know, having a dumb title on a book you work put, you know what I mean? Sure. So I hadn't heard a whole lot yeah. that I liked about writing cookbooks. Okay. And then you mix that with like, I get up every day and I work on a recipe I'm excited about and I publish it for a happy audience and this is going like why would I why would I want like a boss and a deadline and all these things that I'm like very yeah. bad at? Yeah. Sure. Um so I really I needed it a picture painted for me of like why it would yeah. work. And I will say that part of the reason I even took a meeting with an agent was because I was like I was literally like not eight months pregnant and I was like, I don't know, maybe I should hand him something more than a URL when he grows up. Yeah. <laughs> um, your mommy's life work. Yeah. But doesn't hope the server doesn't crash before you get that all down. Yeah. Um and what had happened was I met my agent and she was like, No, it's not gonna be like that. Yeah. It's gonna be like this. You're gonna have a say. They're gonna like and it was really I don't know. I was like, oh, I'm gonna write, I'm gonna write a cookbook. Yeah. I'm gonna write a cookbook. And it was nothing like I was afraid it was gonna be. Yeah. And it really helped to have a good agent or a good advisor. If you don't want to work with an agent, well, I mean, that's okay. Whatever works for you. But I felt like it was really helpful for me to have somebody vouching for me at every step and making sure that I got it all down so that when the publisher bought the book, they knew I wanted. Say in the cover, say in the font, yeah. say in the uh, that I was going to take my own photos, and that you know I, all those things that I was afraid about, like losing choice on and creating a book that people were like, "This isn't Smith Kitchen. This is something else." Yeah, and and your first book debuted as a new, number two New York Times bestseller, right? Like mm-hmm. out the gate, did you? I mean, you had a huge following. Obviously, you had an audience already, but did that? Did you expect that? Did that surprise you? I didn't really fully understand what the New York Times bestseller was. <laughs> okay. I mean, like, I mean, I understood like it was like words that agents and editors said, but nobody was like, you're gonna be on the list. And I'm like, who the what? Yeah. I right. was I think I was actually on a flight from Seattle to Vancouver heading. I was like the end of my West Coast tour. And I was like a little tired when I got the call and like my phone started blowing up and I was like, everyone was so excited. I'm like, cool, what is it? You know, yeah. <laughs> and I don't mean like that's how outside of publishing I sure. was. But I understood that everybody was very excited and that this was a good thing. Right. And then it was like, unfortunately, once that's in your head, it's almost a little dangerous. Because I was like, well, great. If I write another book and it's not a number two New York Times bestseller, <laughs> I might as well just quit this job. <laughs> yeah. And I would like to tell you that's gone away, but it has been. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. So it's it's a very nice thing and it makes publishers very happy. And sure. obviously, I want this for everybody. Yeah. But um, it was also like the number of weeks it stayed on the list, too. Where I was like, um, yeah. So it made it actually made the second book very scary to write. <laughs> sure, I, yeah, I can imagine. And did you know after doing the first one that you wanted to do a second one? Then you had to 
despite all these things you'd heard, you ended up having a good experience with your first book? I had book? a good experience, but I still hated writing a book. Okay. Um, and that was just more like you're just with this content for so long and so far past the point that you enjoy it. Yeah. And it's not just like, I hope the recipe I put up Monday people like. It's like times 110 sure. and not really like, I can always add it. Oh, Tab, this recipe isn't working. It doesn't happen often. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's very rarely. Yeah. But it, you know, it can be fixed and just the stress of like putting all the stuff out, not really knowing whether people are going to like it or whether it's going to land. And, you know, you've got like a year between finishing the book and finding right. out whether people hate it or not. Sure. Um, so I yeah. would not say it was like, I enjoyed that. Yeah. Um. So I was like, I'm not going to write another book. Let's go. We're good. Yeah. I've but, one. but something changed. Yeah. I just forgot. <laughs> I forgot. And then I started writing. I'm like, I hate this. <laughs> yeah. So I will say the first two books yeah. were really difficult for me because okay. I didn't really feel like I knew what I was doing. And okay. I know it's weird to say that now, but um, I understand now that I didn't really understand what I was doing. Sure. And I will say that when it came time to write a third cookbook and I was like, I do want to write this, but I have to start looking at all the reasons I hated writing the like we have to like we got to work this out like why do we yeah. hate writing this what are the parts that suck like yeah. how do we stop making this suck so much and I had a, a lot of conversations with a lot of people about that and I think it made this third book the strongest what like what were some of those parts that sucked if you can say I that you changed I felt like around. especially with the first two books I didn't really know what was supposed to be in the book Okay. Which is so weird because I know what I want to put on my In terms of like side. what re recipes and things? Sometimes or? like a what recipe or what people wanted from this book. Okay. Did they want slightly more enhanced ideas? Did they I want see. something more aspirational? Yeah. Did they want something more every day? Did they want something to get them from boredom? You know what I mean? Sure. Maybe yes to all of this, but I just, I was a lot, I, was, I felt like I was doing a lot of like, I hope you like this and like closing my eyes and running away, which was... I'm glad people did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but for this one, I was like, I think I should know by now what people want from a book. Hmm. Like I should, I have the, I read every comment on my site. I right. know how we want to cook. I know how we don't want to cook. I know what, what I hate about making meatloaf or something else. Like why yeah. don't we just start with like really like owning every crumb of this recipe and believing in every single one yeah. and it made it i mean it was still hard because i set this very high bar like it has to be a keeper sure. it can't just be like a good recipe right it has to be a keeper right the last one you'll ever use like Jesus. yeah it is a high bar but you you landed on this sort of theme this keeper theme yeah. and what what does a keeper mean to you then like did you did you make a definition for yourself as you were working on the book for me it was very much like the last version of the a recipe version. I never went to was uh -huh. that. And then I also have the subtitle, which is New Classics for Your Forever Files. And I felt like I was very, I spent many, many hours thinking about the word classics and what I wanted it to mean and what I didn't, because classics can be boring. Like, yeah. I don't know that we need another fettuccine Alfredo recipe. Like, right. do we right. really for sure? But then I, you know, so I had all these rules that if it was a classic recipe, I had to feel like I was doing it in some way that was different or better, that I had found something that really made it easier, more doable, better textured, better flavored. Um, so each, if it's a, if it's a known recipe, I hope, I've done it in some way that really improves it. And if it's not, if it's more on the new side of classic, I hope it has the potential to become one. Sure. 
Yeah. Very low bar. <laughs> yeah. No, you, you said you totally said reasonable. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you write a little bit in the book too, speaking back to your earlier careers <laughs> about working in the nursing home and that the term keeper is always kind of stuck in your mind, right? Because the, the older women there would like talk about your boyfriends and things as, oh, he's a keeper, right? He's a keeper. He's a keeper. I love yeah. that term <laughs> so term, much. Yeah. And it also, I think my editor did a, a search once on the site and it had come up 762 times in comments. On your site. Before I ever had a book announced called Keepers. Yeah. It was just like, this is a keeper, Deb. Yeah. This is a keeper. And it yeah. was like the word was there the whole time. Yeah. I think I was just afraid to set that bar, you uh-huh. know what I mean, to me, that like to just be promising like every single one. Sure. But in a way, it gave me a framework that I felt like the recipes were, it was, it was, not, it was still hard, but it was a little bit easier because I knew what I was supposed to be doing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, you're a former vegetarian, mm-hmm. which I think really f- many of your fans probably know. But like for folks who don't know that, I think once you look at your recipes, really does influence the type of mm-hmm. recipe you're producing. Um, in this book, you offer three vegetable chapters, right? Can you talk about that decision to have small vegetables, medium vegetables, <laughs> and big vegetables chapters and what that sort of means in, in practice? Well, just from the beginning, um, I call cabbage a small vegetable. So it's not really about the size of the vegetable. Sure. Okay. (laughs) So what it is, is that if you eat vegetables and if you like vegetarian dishes, there's always like, well, is it a main? Does it have protein? Isn't this just a side dish? Yeah. I hate those conversations. I find them exhausting. Every one of us are perfectly happy with a roasted sweet potato for lunch some days, right? Like, I don't need to tell you that this can be a meal. I don't. So I wanted to get out of the language of courses Uh and mains and sides. And so what I basically did, but I wanted to be able to have things that these are the these are the vegetable recipes I wanted. Sure. So I basically just spread them all out, like you're spreading them out on the table in a continuum of the smallest. So the smallest ones are, and I didn't want to call it small dishes because they're not necessarily small dishes. Yeah. It's just small, smaller vegetable preparation. Yeah. So uh-huh. this is this is the charred salt and vinegar cabbage and yes, spiced sweet potato so fries. <laughs> yeah. It's simpler things that yes could be a side dish, but I am absolutely going to eat a tray of it for lunch. Like please understand. Sure. So it could be a light lunch, but that's up to you. It could also be a side dish. The medium are the ones that, like, well, that's not a full meal. Sure. Um, it could be a galette. It could be a smaller, you know, and it's got, like, the cover dish is a medium vegetable. Like, maybe spaghetti with garlic butter is a meal for you. Maybe yeah. it's not the whole meal. Yeah. Maybe you add something else in. Um, and then the large ones, I think, are more recognizable as main. Like, a falafel sandwich is a falafel sandwich. And sure. a lasagna is a lasagna. Right. So, right. I think those are less. So, I think I was hoping it would give people other language to describe vegetarian dishes than just yeah. means and sides. Yeah, I really like that. You. you also open the book, open-ish, early on with vet, with breakfast salads, um, which I love. You offer three breakfast salads. Can you talk about that? I love breakfast salads yeah. so much. And I was like, I hope these don't they seem like throwaway recipes. Like, Not at all, I, to me when at least. I yeah. throw these things together, listen, I'm often making pancakes or French toast for the kids. Sure. Like, and I want, and we have all these, we have avocado, we have cottage cheese, we have all these, and I want like some savory, fresh elements. And I love, I love a salad at breakfast. So these were just some veg, some fruit, some vegetables, some mix. And they were just basically three templates for what I do when I have things like this in the fridge. And I'm glad people are making them because 
I think we should have a melon salad for breakfast. Yeah, I think so too. I love that. Um, you've, you've written three books now. This is your your third cookbook. Um, we mentioned a, a little bit, or we talked a little bit about this process, but mm. how do you think your books sort of have evolved over the three? I know mm-hmm. this is the one you write in the intro too, that you say, um, not to be melodramatic, but this is the book you were always meant to write. Mm-hmm. Um, is this sort of like, you feel like this is a real culmination of your work? I know culmination feels like definitive in some way, like it's over, but but this feels like it's a real embodiment of I feel like this kitchen. one is. Yeah. It just took me a while to, you know, because I just started off being like, I'm just going to cook some stuff. I'm looking for some recipes. Yeah. I feel like, and that's why I hearken back to like the early days of the site. Like this is, this is what I was trying to do. Uh-huh. And I love so many recipes in the first two books. They're great. And I'm glad yeah. they have made are in so many people's homes, but I feel like this one more from beginning to end is yeah. what I wanted, which was just, this is my favorite way to make a cottage cheese breakfast salad. And sure. this is like, and only that. Yeah. Um. So I feel like, yeah, it's, it's probably strongest representation of what I'm trying to do with the site. Uh-huh. So will will there be a fourth book? Oh no, I would never do this again. It's horrible. <laughs> um, but I will say that there was definitely what I realized is that by writing a book where I kind of knew what I was wanting to do and yeah. what I wanted to get out of it, I realized that it was a little bit dangerous because I felt like I could suddenly write a lot of books, oh, yeah. which I've never felt before. Yeah. <laughs> because one of my favorite things to do, and I just never realized before this book that it was actually like my favorite way to cook is that so many of those recipes come from a place of me going, I don't like this recipe. I don't think this is a good dish, Mm, (laughs) which is crazy. Like I literally have this old email to my editor where I was like, well, I'm never going to put a pound cake in a book. That's so boring. There's so many pound cakes. Yeah. I would never, like if I was to make a pound cake, it would be like, have to be like really towering and have like a sugared bark lid and good amount of sour cream there for tang that have exactly the right salt levels. So it was like yeah. really good. I'm like, oh my God, that's my pound cake recipe. Yeah. Get get in the kitchen. Yeah. So I was like that. I was like, I don't want to make a meatloaf recipe. It's gonna be turkey meatloaf. Like I'm I'm the skeptic. So it's called turkey meatloaf for skeptics. Yes. But anyway, but <laughs> so what I wanted to say is so you asked me if I'm gonna write a fourth book. And what I realized in writing recipes that way yeah. is that Oh my God, there's so many dishes I hate that I would love to make myself love. <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting. And and it wasn't something you were really doing regularly before that approach before this book. I didn't realize that that was a pure and totally yeah. great way to go at uh-huh. recipes. I mean, I mean, I'm not gonna publish it if it didn't actually fall in love with the result. I mean, sure. like, I am now a meatloaf person. I love pound cake. I just yeah. needed this one. Yeah. Uh-huh. You needed a keeper. <laughs> I needed a keeper. <laughs> um, we're obviously a show on cookbooks. We always like to ask if there are other authors or cookbooks that have been really meaningful to you over the course of your career, like authors that you've turned to when you're there's so many. Yeah, when you're my cookbook your shelves or, look like this. Yeah. But picture it in a small apartment. I literally uh-huh. is about this size. Um, there are so many. I am inspired by so many books for different reasons. Sometimes it's more sure. just recipe focused. Like, you know, they've got a great brownie recipe or I love this sugar cookie. But sometimes I just love reading it. I love the Adelangi Test Kitchen book. I yeah. love, you know, I get so much. I love the way Nigel Slater writes about cooking. Yeah. I love, I mean, salt, fat, acid, heat. Yeah. And I, um, I I just, I love both the recipes and her explaining things. So the truth is that I love everything. And I know that's so boring, but it's hard for me to pick one recipe, one book from beginning to end that is single-handedly informed my career. But I do remember that very early on, I 
loved Sunday Supper was with so much. It was yeah. such a great book, and I made so many great dinner parties with recipes from that book. So yeah, it's a good that book. It's that aspect of my life very well. What do you think makes a great cookbook? Like, like the few of that you just met. I think it could be so many things. It could be a glimpse of a life in another place and the foods you eat and how you shop. Sure. It could be a story of a family. I love the Walks of Life cookbook. Yeah. It's a family cookbook. It's so lovely. Yeah. Um, but it's got these great recipes so you can just pick it up and make dinner tonight. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's so there's there's such a wide range. We think of cookbooks as just recipes, but right. it's so much more. Sometimes right. you just study the flavors and it gets you daydreaming about them. So yeah. it could be it could be so many things. Yeah. Well, we always end with little games, so I have some cards next to you here. Oh my God. Um, and I thought we would play uh, Making a Keeper uh, oh is God. the theme. So you have four decks there. Uh, vegetables are obviously vegetables, proteins, proteins, flavors are herbs and spices, and then the blue deck is secret ingredients. So we can play this sort of like chopped. You can draw one from each of the categories, and that's what you have to work with. And tell us if you can make a keeper uh, recipe with those ingredients. And if not, we can you can just fritter it, right? Shuffling the deck is on <laughs> Shuffle, a trashy please, yes. on trashy people. No, don't trust us. <laughs> um all right. And then we're gonna have And the secret ingredient, which can be I'm terrified actually. Wild card. I mean All right, so what are we gonna do? Oh oh no. Okay, what are we working oh, with? Oh no. I could work with anything but one of them. I we have vanilla bean paste. Okay. Basil. Okay. Turkey and asparagus. So I feel like I've gotten really solid on the asparagus. Turkey and basil, but I cannot handle vanilla. And <laughs> I'm going to get so many emails now that are like, <laughs> I know vanilla can be in savory foods. It's just yes. extremely not in my palate. So yeah. I think I'm going to fail. I think I'm going to fail. I don't know if I have a keeper here. Okay. Well, what would I you do with um, like, the rest then? I feel like I wanted to definitely like a nice basil vinaigrette, okay. poached asparagus. And I feel like I want to do something. Let me think. What do I want to do? I kind of want to do like almost like a. Mm, almost like a buttery braised turkey broth, like that you kind of break into chunks and then maybe sure. that's like goes to the side. I'm not sure. I'm and then I want it to work with the basil vinaigrette too. So maybe a summery turkey. Okay. I'm working yeah. on it. I'm yeah. workshopping. I don't know. The vanilla is a tough one. Yeah. Um, I would definitely make a nice shake with the vanilla. I okay. Make, I, would, I would put, I would definitely that's recommend nice... this for a pound cake that you should eat after. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's a nice summer dessert mm. with a nice summer meal. <laughs> I think a nice buttery shallotty braised turkey would be nice for spring yeah that's nice okay one more try let's see if you get a, an All easier right. round this time oh my goodness i was like not the vanilla bean anything with that <laughs> All right, i'm taking the top now that i've shuffled everything. okay Oh, all right. Oh, yeah. Better or worse? Nice. What are we working yeah, we're with? We're doing this for sure. This is going to be amazing. Okay, great. All right. We have shrimp. Okay. We have kale. Okay. We have lemon. Magic. Great. Magic. Yeah. Uh huh. And a large Italian pork sausage called Cotecchio, I think. Okay. Uh huh. Um, oh, my goodness. Oh. We are going to have such, such, such a good dish. I feel like I'm going to make, I want to make, the crispy chili garlic butter shrimp that also has lemon in it in my yeah, book. Uh -huh. And I want to add maybe a little bit of this sausage crumbled up in this chili sure. butter. Like I feel like I want to brown it up and do the butter. And then maybe we'll do a little bit of 
I feel like you could do some melted kale in there too. Yeah. And yeah. definitely everything that's finished with lemon. All of these things yes. are so good with lemon. Don't give me kale without lemon. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think this is going to be so good. I just want to make this. That does sound like a keeper to me. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for playing our game and thank you so much for joining us, Deb. This was so great. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. If you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. We also love to see your ratings on Apple Podcasts. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Cleo Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney, and the Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers digital and in-person classes for home cooks, and you can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to our friend Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.